Ramo Polselli owed the IRS over $2 million for a decade of underpaid taxes. So the IRS pursued that debt by issuing summonses to the banks of Polselli's wife and attorneys for records without sending any kind of notice to Mrs. Polselli or her attorneys. The IRS was allowed to do this because of an exception in the IRS code which excludes summonses issued in aid of the collection of tax assessments from the notice requirement. So the question before the court in this case was whether the IRS can issue a summons for anyone's records whenever the IRS thinks those records might somehow help it collect a delinquent taxpayer's debt, all without notifying that taxpayer. And the court said, yes, it does. In the May 18, 2023, unanimous opinion in Polselli v. IRS. Chief Justice Roberts delivered the opinion for a unanimous court. Justice Jackson filed a concurring opinion in which Justice Gorsuch joined. For as long as Americans have had to pay taxes, at least some have tried to avoid them. And for as long as Americans have avoided taxes, the Internal Revenue Service and its predecessors have tried to collect them. As an old joke goes, I believe we should all pay taxes with a smile. I tried, but they wanted cash. Congress has given the IRS considerable power to go after unpaid taxes. One tool at the service's disposal is the authority to summon people with information concerning a delinquent taxpayer. But to safeguard privacy, the IRS is generally required to provide notice to anyone named in a summons who can then sue to quash it. Today's case concerns an exception to that general rule. Part 1. To pursue unpaid taxes and the people who owe them, Congress has granted the service broad latitude to issue summonses. Among other things, the IRS may issue a summons to determine the liability of a taxpayer or any transferee or fiduciary for unpaid taxes. The IRS also may serve a summons to collect any such liability. These summonses can extend to third parties beyond the taxpayer under investigation. Accordingly, the IRS may request the production of books, papers, records, or other data from any person who possesses information concerning a delinquent taxpayer. Given the breadth of this power, Congress has imposed certain safeguards. The IRS must generally give notice of the summons to any person identified in the summons. Anyone entitled to notice can bring a motion to quash the summons and the Internal Revenue Code provides district courts with jurisdiction to hear and determine any proceeding concerning a motion to quash, thereby waiving the sovereign immunity of the United States. There are, however, exceptions to the notice requirement. As relevant, the IRS need not provide notice to a person who is identified in the summons if the summons is 
issued in aid of the collection of 1. An assessment made or judgment rendered against the person with respect to whose liability the summons is issued, or 2. The liability at law or in equity of any transferee or fiduciary of any person referred to in Clause 1. In other words, the IRS may issue summonses both to determine whether a taxpayer owes money and later to collect any outstanding liability. When the IRS conducts an investigation for the purposes of determining the liability of a taxpayer, it must provide notice. But once the service has reached the stage of collecting any such liability, which is a distinct activity, notice may not be required. Part 2 For multiple years between 2005 and 2017, Ramo Polselli underpaid his federal taxes. After investigating, the IRS determined that Mr. Polselli was liable for the unpaid amounts and other penalties, and entered official assessments against him totaling more than $2 million. Revenue Officer Michael Bryant then set out to collect the money, and he developed a few leads in his search for assets that Mr. Polselli may have been concealing. Bryant focused on bank accounts belonging to Mr. Polselli's wife, petitioner Hannah Carcho Polselli. Bryant also knew that Mr. Polselli had paid nearly $300,000 toward part of his outstanding tax liability from an account owned by Dolce Hotel Management LLC and surmised that Mr. Polselli might have control over funds belonging to that company. To further his investigation, Bryant issued a summons under Section 7602 to the law firm Abraham and Rose PLC, where Mr. Polselli had been a client. But the firm produced no records in response, stating that it did not retain any of the documents requested. Bryant then issued several additional summonses seeking records concerning Mr. Polselli. Bryant issued one summons to Wells Fargo requesting the financial records of both Mrs. Polselli and Dolce Hotel Management. He also issued summonses to J.P. Morgan Chase and Bank of America seeking, among other things, copies of all bank statements relating to Mr. Polselli and petitioners Jerry R. Abraham, P.C., and Abraham and Rose, P.L.C. Bryant did not provide notice to any of the third parties named in the three summonses, but the banks did, and Mrs. Polselli, Jerry R. Abraham, and Abraham and Rose filed motions to quash in federal district court. The district court dismissed the case for lack of subject matter jurisdiction, reasoning that the IRS did not need to provide notice. The district court credited Bryant's assertions that the purpose of his investigation was to locate assets to satisfy Mr. Polselli's existing assessed federal tax liability, and that the IRS issued the summonses in question to aid in the collection of these assessed liabilities. Because the code excluded petitioners from the required notice, 
there was no waiver of sovereign immunity, and the district court therefore lacked jurisdiction to entertain the motions to quash. The Sixth Circuit affirmed in a divided opinion, reasoning that no notice was required because the summonses at issue fall squarely within the exception listed in Section 7609C2D1. Before the Sixth Circuit, petitioners had argued in favor of a rule, previously adopted by the Ninth Circuit, requiring that a taxpayer have some legal interest or title in the object of the summons for the notice exception to apply. To decide whether a taxpayer maintains a sufficient legal interest in the object of the summons, the Ninth Circuit considers whether there was an employment, agency, or ownership relationship between the taxpayer and third party. But the Sixth Circuit below rejected the Ninth Circuit's legal interest test, concluding that it was contrary to the plain language of Section 7609C2D1. The panel below instead held that, as long as the third-party summons is issued to aid in the collection of any assessed tax liability, the notice exception applies. In so concluding, the Sixth Circuit aligned itself with both the Seventh and Tenth Circuits. Judge Kethledge dissented. He acknowledged that an ordinary reading of the statute exempted the summonses from notice, but thought the statutory context compelled a narrower construction. As an initial matter, Judge Kethledge expressed concern that the panel's reading of the notice exception risked a significant intrusion upon the privacy of account holders. He argued that an ordinary reading of the first exception to notice would render the second exception, codified in section 7609C2D2, superfluous. To avoid that, Judge Kethledge would have narrowed the first exception by adopting the legal interest test from the Ninth Circuit. We granted certiorari to resolve the division among the circuits. Part 3 The question presented is whether the exception to the notice requirement in Section 7609C2D1 applies only where a delinquent taxpayer has a legal interest in accounts or records summoned by the IRS under Section 7602A. A straightforward reading of the statutory text supplies a ready answer. The notice exception does not contain such a limitation. Section A the statute sets forth three conditions to exempt the IRS from providing notice in circumstances like these. First, a summons must be issued in aid of collection. Second, it must aid the collection of an assessment made or judgment rendered. By assessment, the code refers to the official recording of a taxpayer's liability. Section 7609C2D1 does not excuse notice, therefore, until the IRS makes an official assessment or a judgment has been rendered with respect to a taxpayer's liability. Third, a summons must aid the collection of assessments or judgments 
against the person with respect to whose liability the summons is issued. This requirement links the subject of the assessment or judgment with the subject of the collection effort. They must concern the same delinquent taxpayer. None of the three components for excusing notice in Section 7609C2D1 mentions a taxpayer's legal interest in records sought by the IRS, much less requires that a taxpayer maintain such an interest for the exception to apply. Had Congress wanted to include a legal interest requirement, it certainly knew how to do so. The very next provision, also enacted as part of the Tax Reform Act of 1976, requires the IRS to establish the rates and conditions for reimbursing costs incurred in searching for, reproducing, or transporting information sought by a summons. But the IRS may not provide reimbursement if the person with respect to whose liability the summons is issued has a proprietary interest in the records to be produced. We assume that Congress acts intentionally and purposely when it includes particular language in one section of a statute, but omits it in another section of the same act. The fact that the exception to the reimbursement provision expressly turns on a taxpayer's proprietary interest in records summoned by the IRS, strongly suggests that Congress deliberately omitted a similar requirement with respect to the notice exception in Section 7609C2D1. And here, the provision in question is not just in the same act. It is in the adjacent section, having been enacted in the same public law. Section B. Petitioners advance two primary arguments in support of their proposed legal interest test, neither of which convinces us to abandon an ordinary reading of the notice exception. First, petitioners adopt a narrow definition of in aid of the collection. In their view, the phrase refers only to inquiries that directly advance the IRS's collection efforts. A summons will not directly advance those efforts, they contend, unless it is targeted at an account containing assets that the IRS can collect to satisfy the taxpayer's liability. And, petitioners say, the only way that a summons issued to a third party will produce collectible assets is if the delinquent taxpayer has a legal interest in the targeted account. This argument does not give a fair reading to the phrase, in aid of the collection. According to petitioners, the phrase requires that a summons produce collectible assets, but to aid means to help or assist. Petitioners agree. Even if a summons may not itself reveal taxpayer assets that can be collected, it may nonetheless help the IRS find such assets. Consider this case. The IRS's investigation suggested that Mr. Polselli often uses other entities to shield assets from the Internal Revenue Service. Bryant suspected, for instance, that Mr. Polselli was using Dolce Hotel Management as an alter ego and also that he might have access to 
and use of Mrs. Polselli's bank accounts. Based on those leads, Bryant initially requested that Abraham and Rose produce canceled checks, wire transfer slash credit documents, and all other instruments used by Mr. Polselli to pay the firm. Whether Mr. Polselli maintains a legal interest in those records, a confounding question, is neither here nor there. The IRS could not, of course, use records of canceled checks and the like to satisfy Mr. Poselli's tax deficiency, but if those records showed that money from Dolce Hotel Management was used to pay Mr. Poselli's account at Abraham and Rose or to pay others through Abraham and Rose, that could aid in collecting funds from Dolce Hotel Management to help pay Mr. Poselli's debt to the IRS. Or the service could use those records to try to identify other alter egos besides Dolce Hotel Management where Mr. Polselli might have hidden assets. By the same token, the summonses Bryant issued to the three banks sought records to identify entities whose funds Mr. Polselli has control over without formal ownership and bank accounts associated with such entities. As with the request Brian issued to Abraham and Rose, even if the three bank summonses did not reveal bank accounts in which Mr. Polselli has a legal interest, they could lead to assets parked elsewhere that the IRS could collect to satisfy his $2 million liability. IRS investigations are much like any other, A detective might order forensic testing or speak to witnesses to help identify a culprit, even if those activities are unlikely, in and of themselves, to solve the crime. Similarly, documents in the accounts belonging to Mrs. Polselli or Dolce Hotel Management may be a step in a paper trail leading to assets owned by Mr. Polselli. Everyday tasks illustrate the same point. A recipe might help a chef shop for needed groceries, even though more steps are required before dinner will be ready. By conflating activities that help advance a goal with activities sure to accomplish it, petitioners ignore the typical meaning of in aid of. Petitioners next argue that the exception provided in Clause 1 must be read narrowly as to avoid making entirely superfluous the exception found in Clause 2. Clause 1 excuses notice when the IRS issues a summons in aid of the collection of an assessment made or judgment rendered against the delinquent taxpayer. Clause 2 exempts from notice any summons issued in aid of the collection of the liability at law or in equity of any transferee or fiduciary of any person referred to in Clause 1. We ordinarily aim to give effect to every clause and word of a statute. But this argument overlooks two differences between Clause 1 and Clause 2. First, Clause 1 is applicable upon an assessment 
while Clause 2 is applicable upon a finding of liability. Under the Code, a taxpayer's liability for unpaid taxes arises before the IRS makes an official assessment of what the delinquent taxpayer owes. Although an assessment may trigger levy and collection efforts, the Code does not require in all cases that the IRS make a formal assessment before attempting to collect an outstanding tax liability. Second, Petitioner's argument overlooks that Clause 1 and Clause 2 are addressed to different entities. Clause 1 concerns assessments or judgments against a taxpayer, the person with respect to whose liability the summons is issued. Clause 2, in contrast, concerns the liability of a transferee or fiduciary. That the notice exception distinguishes between taxpayers and their fiduciaries or transferees should come as no surprise. The Code elsewhere separately empowers the IRS to collect outstanding tax liabilities from taxpayers, on the one hand, and from transferees or fiduciaries on the other. The Code also differentiates between taxpayers and their fiduciaries or transferees in empowering the IRS to issue summonses in the first place. These distinctions between liability and assessment or judgment and between taxpayers and their transferees or fiduciaries are not just academic. They show that the second notice exception found in Clause 2 applies in situations where Clause 1 may not. To dispense with notice, Clause 1 requires that there be an assessment made or judgment rendered against the person with respect to whose liability the summons is issued. By contrast, Clause 2 does not impose the same conditions. It instead authorizes the IRS to issue a summons in aid of collecting a liability at law or in equity and refers specifically to the liability of any transferee or fiduciary of the delinquent taxpayer. As a result, Clause 2 permits the IRS to issue unnoticed summonses to aid its collection from transferees or fiduciaries before it makes an official recording of a taxpayer's liability. That may not be very heavy work for the phrase to perform, but a job is a job, and enough to bar the rule against redundancy from disqualifying an otherwise sensible reading. Clause 2 addresses an additional potential problem as well. Delinquent taxpayers sometimes declare bankruptcy or otherwise discharge debt. But when they do so, the government may not be able to collect an assessment made or judgment rendered against the taxpayer. In those situations, Clause 1 may not apply, for a summons cannot be issued in aid of an impossible collection effort. But Clause 2 may nevertheless permit the IRS to issue unnoticed summonses to collect the liability of the taxpayer's transferee or fiduciary. Part 4. Petitioners also emphasize the privacy concerns that led Congress to enact the notice requirement in the first place. They highlight that Congress enacted Section 7609 
in response to two decisions in which we gave a broad construction to the IRS's general summons power. In Donaldson v. United States, 1971, we considered whether the employee of a company to which the IRS had issued a summons could intervene to prevent his employer's compliance with the service's request. We concluded that the employee had no right to do so. And in United States v. Bisheglia, 1975, we approved an IRS summons issued to a bank for the purpose of identifying an unnamed individual who had deposited a large amount of money in severely deteriorated bills, concluding that the IRS had not abused its authority. Donaldson and Bisheglia help explain why Congress enacted Section 7609, which establishes a baseline rule requiring the IRS to provide notice and which authorizes anyone entitled to notice to move to quash a summons. But neither case obliges us to read the notice exception in Section 7609C2D1 more narrowly than its terms provide. We think the history highlighted by petitioners supports a contrary conclusion. That Congress proved acutely aware of our prior decisions supports a plain reading not only of the general notice requirement, but also of the specific exception the statute provides. We do not dismiss any apprehension about the scope of the IRS's authority to issue summonses. As we have said, the authority vested in tax collectors may be abused, as all power is subject to abuse. Tax investigations often involve the pursuit of sensitive records. In this case, for instance, the IRS sought information from law firms concerning client accounts, and even the government concedes that the phrase, in aid of the collection, is not limitless. The government proposes a test turning on reasonableness. So long as a summons is reasonably calculated to assisting in collection, it can fairly be characterized as being issued in aid of that collection. This is not, however, the case to try to define the precise bounds of the phrase in aid of the collection. The parties did not argue and the panel below did not decide the contours of that phrase. In addition, both the briefing by the parties and the question presented focus only on whether the exception provided in Section 7609C2D1 requires that a taxpayer maintain a legal interest in records summoned by the IRS. For the reasons we have given, the answer is no. The judgment of the Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit is affirmed. It is so ordered. We've come to the end of the opinion. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.